I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily life, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Well, if this is one of your first times joining us, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in and have this conversation with me about our faith. If you are a regular listener, well, then chances are you know exactly what we're talking about today. Uh, this whole Paschal Tide season, these weeks following Easter, we have been talking about the Eucharist and about the Mass from different directions, different ideas, different uh, viewpoints. And perhaps you're getting a little bored. Well, have I got a conversation for you. <laughs> Today we're talking with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who's the Academic Director of Liturgy at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. And we're talking with him about his book, Bored Again Catholic. Yeah, you heard that right. Bored Again Catholic, How the Mass Could Save Your Life. It's available on our Sunday Visitor Press. You can go get it right now at osv.com or wherever fine Catholic books are sold. And uh, we're talking to him about this, this primer, as he puts it. This is a, a primer to help you and I get the most out of Mass, recognizing that some of the monotony, some of the boredom that we get out of Mass is actually good for us, and it spawns our imagination, and it stirs us up uh, for us to, to have a profound encounter with God. I think about the, the monotony of Mass very much in the same way I think about the monotony of the Rosary, that here I am, and I'm, I'm praying these same prayers over and over again, whether it be in the rosary or whether it be in the mass, to the point that I no longer have to think about it. I don't have to say, where am I in this prayer, right? Uh, I know that when I finish the, the this Hail Mary, my finger instinctively, muscle memory moves to the next bead. And it's that muscle memory, the, the act of praying without even thinking about it, that makes the rosary powerful. When I was a Protestant, I used to think that my prayers were all about uh, engaging my intellect, right? And knowing what it is that I'm saying and knowing what it is that I want to communicate to God. And, and so it's about the, um, the eloquence of one's words uh, that the, the rating of the prayer. The prayer was a good prayer if you were able to communicate well what you thought. Of course, God looks at the heart and God doesn't need our words. In fact, uh, in the Catechism, they say that God uttered one single word through which all other words come. And of course, that word, capital W, is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. He is the single utterance of God. And so uh, eloquence is not necessarily something that impresses God all that much. This is the, the, the deity who spoke and worlds were formed. And here it is, we do our best just to form our words. And so the, the whole concept of prayer, as I've become a Catholic, has kind of shifted on me. Now it's not so much the eloquence of my words, it's now the disposition of my heart. And so here I am praying the rosary or praying the mass. And I instinctively, muscle memory, go to the next bead. And if I get distracted, my muscle is still going to remember I get to the end of that prayer and my thumb moves. And when my thumb moves and I go to that next bead on the rosary, all of a sudden I'm reminded, oh, I'm supposed to be praying here. And so I recenter my thoughts and I offer again my intention to God and I return again to the mystery 
of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection that I happen to be on with that specific mystery of the rosary. And I re-enter into that disposition of heart where I can commune with God. The same can be true in the Mass, where it's the same prayers week after week, and perhaps you or your children just get a little bored with it. Uh, You get bored having to correct your children and make them sit still, or whatever the case is in your specific stage of life. And maybe you leave Mass and you say, I didn't really, I don't know that I really got anything out of that. Yeah, I know that the church talks about active participation. I know that I'm supposed to do something in the Mass, but maybe I didn't like the homily. Maybe I didn't like the music. Maybe maybe I just wasn't really touched today. Well, it's the very act of the boredom in the Mass, the monotony of the Mass, that can stir up our imaginations, that can help us uh, to, rather than look to be entertained, it can help us look to connect with God in conversation with the very deepest places of our heart. And so we re-enter that disposition of offering God all that we are, but this isn't something that comes naturally. It's not something that we gravitate toward uh, with ease. It's not the same as that muscle memory. We've got to get to a place where we practice in our hearts that disposition. So eventually we'll have this heart memory, just like we have the muscle memory when we pray the rosary or some other prayer, that as soon as we come into the place of the sanctuary, come step into the nave of the church, we have this spiritual memory that draws us into that prayer. So this book by Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who we'll talk with in a moment, uh, is a primer. It's kind of an exercise booklet that helps you practice and exercise these dispositions of heart to kind of unpack the Mass and what it is at each individual stage that I should be meditating on, should be looking toward, uh, should be uh, putting my heart in the right place. What kinds of things am I supposed to be thinking? What kinds of things am I supposed to be offering to God? Uh, and, And how can I take this repetitious liturgical service and turn it into something helps me grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that helps me grow in my love of God and of neighbor, that helps me not only attend Mass, but live out the Christian life uh, in everything that I do. If you go to Mass every Sunday, and then you go home and you have your lunch and you watch your sports or take your nap or whatever it is that you do, uh, and that's the extent of what Mass does for you, then there is more available to you. There is more that God wants to give to you out of the Mass. The Mass is not just about sitting with other people and praying on Sunday. It's about joining our hearts together as a community and joining those hearts to God the Father to give us a deep spiritual communion and union with God. When we come back, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Timothy O'Malley about his book, Born Again Catholic, How the Mass Can Save Your Life. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. 
And we're continuing this Paschal season, this Eastertide, to talk about the Mass, because the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith. Everything that we do as Catholics comes from this and moves toward this, uh, toward the reception of Christ in the Eucharist, towards uh, this, this communion uh, and restoration of relationship with God. Today, to talk about that, we're joined by Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Uh, he is the, the director of the academic director of liturgy at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the director of education there, and has written this fabulous book called Bored Again Catholic. Uh, maybe, maybe that title strikes you as something you need to pick up. Maybe you've experienced this idea of, uh, gosh, mass is just the same week after week after week. But, you know, I know I'm supposed to go, and so I, so I end up there. Uh, but, Dr. O'Malley, t- Tim, you talk about um, this boredom as potentially being a positive thing. So thanks for joining us, and let's get right into it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I do talk about boredom in a certain sense as being positive, and, and I make a, I, in the book, I'll, I'll contrast good boredom and bad boredom. And there is bad boredom, um, something like uh, you don't prepare well for mass. Uh, there's architectural sort of ugliness. There's no imagery to capture the imagination. The presider doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing at all. Uh, these are kinds of bad things that should be fixed. And, and um, there's actually something that I call good boredom. And, and it's not strictly speaking boredom, like we understand it, but it's actually sort of the mundane practice of prayer, the habit of prayer that in our lives, we often expect remarkable events to take place all the time. Uh, and so, you know, the example I use when I when I teach on this text is to say, you know, my wife, um, for example, is, you know, I'm married and our life is not always the most exciting life. It's not like there are rainbows and bunnies sort of emerging constantly. There's actually this sort of habit of love that, that we actually abide in. And, and that is actually how um, salvation occurs. So this good boredom is learning to just dwell in the practice of the mass and letting it slowly transform your life over the course of not 15 minutes, but 30 years. You know, I've just moved out to the coast out here on the Puget Sound and uh, the beaches out here are not sand beaches. They are these little stones everywhere. Uh, And as I was out at the edge of, of the water here recently, I noticed something that just beyond where the tide is, all of the stones are rounded and smooth and lovely and just above the tide, all of the rocks are sharp and, and have these strong angles on them. And there's something about the repetitive nature of the water rushing over them over and over again that forms those rocks. And in a similar way, I would think that having the mass and having the liturgy wash over us time and time again similarly forms us, or, or as the the phrase goes lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The the rule of uh, prayer is the rule of belief, is the rule of life. Yeah, I think that's a lovely way of saying it. I mean, uh, I'm very attracted by something that uh, the, the the Catholic philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand says about uh, morning prayer, for example. So certainly, you know, the mass is my interest. But, you know, in, in morning prayer, um, you get up uh, as dawn sort of happens and you pray, and it's the first act that you do in the, at the beginning of the day. And so, you know, it's a way of, of forming you to think slowly over the course of the lifetime that the very first thing you should do is pray to God. 
Now, this is not first a cognitive decision. You know, we don't first say to ourselves, well, this is the first thing I ought to do. Um, But actually, it's the gradual sort of habituated practice that forms us to do this thing. And, um, you know, it it, it changes who we are and what we expect over the course of a lifetime and and ideally smooths us out, uh, just like those stones you were talking about. Well, and as we are being formed ourselves, we also, uh, for those of us who are parents, we're bringing our children along at a very early age, and we are uh, hopefully including them in the mass and, and not, uh, you know, not shipping them off necessarily to uh, to some other distracted thing or something where we feel like we have to entertain them. Uh, but hopefully we're bringing them into this this liturgy. And you contend in your book that that this starts really about the time that you wake up and get into the car before you ever reach the pew, uh, we've begun to prepare ourselves for this, for this mass and for this entrance, right? Yeah. The first, uh, I always think to myself, you know, in today's kind of world, we don't have to go to mass. In other words, Nona's not waiting on the other side or grandma's not waiting on the other side saying, you know, give me a kiss or, um, uh, and then I'll know you haven't been to mass. Uh, the first act of worship is that we actually care at all to, right. to go that we actually sort of conform our lives to go. And, you know, especially with those with kids, we're well aware of the fact that it's difficult to get children ready for mass. Uh, and this is the first act of worship. It, it, it says to our children that there's something that orders our life that is not, um, that we didn't create. It's God. It comes from outside of us. It forms us. It, it's this form of life. So I think it's really important to recognize that that's the first act of worship we perform, uh, the act of, of conforming ourselves to the will of God uh, by simply sort of ordering ourselves to worship. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what are some of the things that you suggest in this, this uh, movement towards, as you put it, the scripture, lift up your, your heads, you mighty gates, the king of glory enters in. What are some of the practical steps that you suggest taking to orient yourself toward the reception of the mass and towards the participation in this Paschal mystery? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that's really important is silence, which is very hard to do, I think, with children. But I think it's really important to find a space to enter the church and sort of engage in a prayer. And it it doesn't have to be long. It can actually be very short. You know, I'll I'll give an example. Uh, You know, one of the ways I orient myself is simply by very intentionally genuflecting with my son. You know, we don't rush in. There's actually an intentional act to it. And it orients us from the beginning. Uh, Or something like... um, Go to a side chapel if there is one uh, and actually light a candle with the child and say a prayer. So, so, so to establish a space where there's a there's a sense of prayer. Of course, you know, this depends upon the fact that you're not rushing in, you know, five minutes after mass has, has right. begun the parking lot what, with snow having pelted you. Um, and, and that happens, too. And so in, in this sense, we really need a space of, of silence in our heart that, that, that we may not be able to cultivate all the time. They're, they, we have to find ways of praying even outside the mass that actually enable us to do this. And this is where, you know, the source and everything. it's the source and the summit, but it presumes we're having a contemplative life, that we're actually engaging in prayer outside of church. And so when we go to Mass, um, we're actually sort of conformed or attuned to this contemplative dimension, which means we're ready for worship very quickly if need be. We're we're used to getting in sort of the mode of worship. Right. We're talking today, if you're just joining us, with Dr. Timothy O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And and Tim, one of the things that we do in our household, which is just delightful, (laughs) Uh, is that we tell the children, we, we start for Mass 
when we get in the car and we, they know that we're going to spend that time on the way to mass doing an exam, examination of conscience and that we're going to be silent and reverent preparing our hearts for the mass, which is um, both it helps them get in the space uh, and two, it lets mom and dad kind of calm down from the rush of trying to get everybody ready in the hecticness that, that we've experienced there. Um, but I, I think a lot of times as parents or, or as society, we don't expect that our children are going to be able to, to recognize different places and different uh, ways of behaving in different places. We're used to saying, oh, use your inside voice, but, but we haven't said to them, okay, now here's another space that's completely other, and this is the way we behave in this space. Uh, And to give them not not as rules and regulations that you hand down from on high, but inviting them in the the innate sense of wonder that they already have to explore a new way of being in a new specific location and place. Yeah, I think children pick up on this very – if children pick up on different places, they see different places, they they notice – this. And actually, it never sort of uh, leaves us, which is why I think these spaces are important. So, you know, you prepare the space in the heart because you you relate to the space in a slightly different way, uh, sort of with kneeling and silence. We we we, we underestimate, I, I suspect, the capacity for children to enjoy silence, to enjoy wonder. Um, you know, and it also points back, I think, to something that's really quite essential. Um, you, you know, I, I haven't didn't take this up necessarily in the book, though it's one of my research interests, is aesthetics and sort of the, this conception of beauty. And I, I really th- I suspect that one of our, our grand problems with why we're bored at mass is we've created spaces that are actually sort of devoid of wonder too often. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, you know, Christ is present in the Eucharist, Christ is present in the scriptures, Christ is present in the gathered assembly and the priest, as uh, the Second Vatican Council noted. Um, but, but, we need matter matters. And that's why sort of being in spaces that are other, that sort of bring us into this otherness that actually lead us to wonder are not accidental things. And so, you know, I really think, you know, whether it's about preaching or music or um, sort of the materiality of the space, we we, we need to be more careful about uh, showing that this is a different kind of space, that there's actually something wondrous happening here that actually deserves our attention and is worthy to contemplate. You know, as we're talking about, even before Mass begins, before we get to the entrance rite, as we are going through our own ritual of entering, uh, you talk about reverencing the altar. You talk, There's a, a number of things that we participate in. We remind ourselves of our baptism at the baptismal font. Uh, we, we genuflect before entering the pew. And this is something that I've found many people aren't aware of. We're not genuflecting to the crucifix, and we're not genuflecting to the altar. We're genuflecting to the presence of Christ in the tabernacle. Uh, so, you know, you'll see some people who, even if the tabernacle is empty on a given day, uh, they they aren't looking for that. They're not realizing that that's the reason behind that action. Uh, and so I think there has to be, uh, as we form ourselves for the Mass, some sense of intentionality as we come in and as we enter before the mass even begins. Yeah, I think it's good to think about the mass as, as, as less about us entering just any normal space, but actually being formed to enter into uh, into the, the presence of God. And, and um, 
we're slowly taught, slowly moved to enter into the divine presence of God. It's a gradual process as we enter in. And even the Mass itself, I mean, sometimes we can be too hard on ourselves to say, uh, okay, well, I haven't prepared myself well. Well, the Eucharist itself prepares us for this. I mean, the, the participation in the Mass, as we move from the Scriptures into the Creed, is slowly into the Eucharistic prayer, slowly to the act of communion. It's a gradual sort of experience of entrance um, and of God really entering into our presence. I mean, so we, we should be careful not to be so um, fixated on our own personal preparation. If you if you pay attention to 17th, 18th, 19th century piety in Europe, for example, there was almost an obsession with with our personal preparation. Uh, what, what's really important is that we have to remember that God is the one who comes to us. God is the first uh, arriver, and that, 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 that God's already there in the presence of the, of the Blessed Sacrament. But also God, uh, you know, the presence of Christ comes to us in the sign of the altar. It comes to us in the sign of the Eucharist, that, that, that it's this all-pervading entrance into divine life that takes place in the Mass, and it's God who acts first. Mm -hmm. We had to prepare ourselves for God to act, in essence, get out of the way. Right. Well, and, and the idea that uh, with all of our preparations, there's nothing we could ever do to be prepared enough to meet God. And so to give ourselves some grace, even as we are uh, trying to quiet our soul to hear from God. There's a lot more to come in this conversation with Dr. Timothy O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And talk to me about what do you do as you get ready for mass uh, throughout the week. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And as we talk about the foundations, nothing is more foundational than the Eucharist. It is the source of everything we do. It's the source and the summit, both that which drives us and that to which we aspire. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley from the, uh, the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame about his book, Bored Again Catholic, How the Mass Could Save Your Life. It's available right now on Our Sunday Visitor. Go to osv.com and pick up your copy. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's, it's been great to be here thus far. So let's talk about uh, this, this liturgy that we're participating in. Yeah, there are new things to it. And uh, for most of us, we're going to the Novus Ordo Mass, the new Mass. And so there are definitely parts of this Mass that, uh, that are new. And yet there's a thread all the way back to the early church with a number of the, the practices within the Mass that we participate in, not, not the least of which being the Eucharist, but even some of our prayers go back to the very beginning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, uh, you know, I think when we talk about the Novus Ordo, the new order, the Mass that was done after the Second Vatican Council, uh, we have to be careful to, to recognize that, the, you know, the whole thing isn't made up. It was sort of drawing upon traditions that were actually ancient, uh, sort of old text in sacramentaries, um, 
uh, all sorts of sort of dimensions, you know, the Gloria, the Creed, uh, even sort of the Roman canon or the first Eucharistic prayer. Th these are all sort of lifted up as kind of essential uh, sort of old practices. Th this is how our forebears prayed. And, and uh, you know, when we enter Mass, we really are sort of not just praying with ourselves, but those who have come before us, the living and the dead. You know, a lot of people may not realize, but the cry, the, the universal call to action of the Second Vatican Council was ad fontes. Let's go back to the source of these things and, and maybe clear up some of the, the, the extraneous things that may have entered into the Mass. Uh, and so a lot of the things that we are doing, even in the Novus Ordo, are, are incredibly ancient and in some ways even more so than the Mass that preceded it. Yeah, there's certainly sort of some ancient dimensions that are that are at the heart of the Eucharist there um, within the sort of Novus Ordo. And of course, I think it's always very important to say that, you know, uh, although it's a new mass, it's not actually that new anymore. Right. Uh, in the sense that it actually has formed now generations mm -hmm. um, in sort of Eucharistic piety, uh, certainly, you know, uh, myself right. uh, included. So let's talk about the Gloria. And I bring this up because I find myself... Uh, recently, probably in the last three or four weeks, uh, that the Gloria is on my lips throughout the week. Uh, I find myself, when I get frustrated in traffic, I, I hear myself start to recite this prayer, this ancient hymn uh, uh, that we sing every Sunday, the Gloria in excelsis. So, so talk a little bit about uh, maybe the origins of this and, and what our current participation in this accomplishes. Yeah, I mean, so the origins of the Gloria, it, it entered, uh, it, it entered um, actually kind of late, uh, not immediately, but but it, it was a, a sort of hymn of praise mm -hmm. that was initially sung around the Christmas season and intoned by the priest or the bishop in the midst of the assembly, and then uh, it was sort of picked up, and um, it eventually sort of was added to all the masses, and of course, you know, we know... Uh, you, Everyone knows the Gloria, that where it comes from. It's from the Gospel of Luke and the angelic song, Glory to God in the highest and peace to people of goodwill. Um, you know, we sing this every year around Christmas, Gloria in excelsis Deo, Glory to God in the highest. And so it's this sort of hymn that, that's incarnational that occurs at the beginning of Mass. And um, it, it, in some ways, is the kind of praise we offer to God that is ever incomplete. I mean, what act of praise could ever be completed before God? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we may think about the glory and think, well, it's actually rather inefficient, right? We praise you, we bless you, we give you thanks. Th those are all synonyms. Um, what's the difference between them? Well, there's a kind of intensification. How much can we praise you? How much can we give you glory? Because this is the God who is the highest. And so mm -hmm. as we pray it, we're entering into a space where we really prepare to praise God with the entirety of our being. We talked in the first segment today about slowly being ready to enter into the Mass. This is one of those moments that engages us and enters us ready for praise. We participate in a song of praise with the entire body of Christ now singing, joined together, in which we slowly prepare ourselves to adequately praise God together to resume our status actually as creatures made for praise. Now, you brought up that there, this falls in a very specific place in the Mass, and all of these, these things that we do in the Mass, all the movements that we have, all of the, the prayers that we pray, they're in a specific order for a specific reason to help us on this journey toward the reception of the Eucharist. 
yeah, yeah. I like to think about the mass as a spiritual exercise. It's intended sort of to prepare us for the heart, which is the reception of the Eucharist, um, of communion, to, to sort of commune with the living sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and so, yeah, it, you know, what does it mean? Uh, you can't just skip over the Gloria and say, well, well what's really important is that when Christ comes, uh, it's actually part of the act of preparation. It would be like saying, well, what, what's really important uh, is, the, you know, what, what's really important in marriage would be sexual intercourse. I mean, uh, that that that's that would reduce marriage. There's there's all sorts of dimensions of, of this love. It's learning to love God well, um, so, so that one can actually truly commune with God. Mm-hmm. And this comes really even before we get to the readings of Scripture. It comes before we hear the the homily expounded, because this this idea of praising God for for who He is is foundational before we get to anything else. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, you know, sometimes when my students say to me, they say like, well, you know, mass is boring. Um, I, I don't get a lot out of it. I always tell them, well, for, for, first of all, I tell them there's ways to get stuff out of it. You sort of have to prepare yourself for it. But I also say, you know, the mass isn't really about you. Uh, and it isn't about what you get out of it. It's about praise of God. It's about an act of justice. Uh, for God alone is the one who's worthy to be praised. And uh, so it's an act of justice. God doesn't ask us to praise God because God is needy, because not God needs us to do so. I mean, that, that would be a very needy God. It would be like, a, uh, it would be uh, not the kind of God that we would want to worship. But this is the God who 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 we praise because God, God wants this praise from us, um, not for neediness, but God wants us to praise because it, it, it is our completion. It is our vocation to be in relationship with God. And not just individually. We have this individual movement. We have this individual preparation, but we also are praising God as a community and not just the community gathered within our parish, as you mentioned earlier, but we're joining into the prayers of all the saints throughout all times in in all places. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I sometimes think that Catholics in the U.S. are particularly individualistic. And, and so the question is, well, what did I get out of it? Am I feeling something? All of this is to miss that actually we have a vocation to belong to the body of the church and, and to join in the communal act of praise that is not our own. St. Augustine refers to the city of God as, a, as, as the saints— the holy ones gathered together and their being, their whole identity has become an act of praise together in perfect harmony. So in some ways, that's what we're performing in the Gloria. We're, we're learning to be church. We're learning what it means to be the church, that the church is the one who gives thanks and adores God, not in competition with one another, but actually together in this sort of city of divine praise. And one of the ways we see that played out during the Mass is in the Creed, because in the Creed we say, I believe, and yet we are all saying it together. We, I, Of course, I can't say that for you because I don't know what's going on in the, in the interior of your heart, but I know that I can say it for me, and as I say it for me and you say it for you and our neighbor says it for themselves, all of a sudden the community of God is now uh, declaring the, the, the very foundations of our faith in the Creed. Yeah, it's a lovely point. Uh, I often think about um, the mass is a kind of perfect school of what it means to be an individual that belongs to a body. Uh, so the church is not a, a sect or a cult that erases individuality, pure and simple. So it's not the case that like now I belong to the church and now I don't have any interior life. Uh, my entire life is lived exterior on the exterior. Nor for that matter is 
is the sort of church's liturgical assumption that that uh, I am strictly speaking an individual and that's it. Right. So in the creed, you have the perfect pedagogy of this. I profess this truth. I profess this truth, which of course is not a truth that I've made up. And actually it's not a truth that I've thought up on my own. It's not like my personal creed. It's the creed that's been given to us by the church that originated as a baptismal creed. Um, sort of the basic structure being the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, I believe in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then sort of stretched out. It's a baptismal creed. Uh, so it's been given to us, but I personally make it my own in proclaiming it in this, the assembly. And together, we proclaim it around this sort of becoming one body in the process. So you can almost think about the creed as, as a foretaste of the Eucharist, uh, the foretaste of, of what will happen when, when Christ becomes totally present in the Eucharist, which is through this one body, this, this one blood, the, the sort of one cup, um, we as the church are gathered around the sacrifice of Christ and we become one, not through our sheer effort, but through a gift that's been, that's been bestowed to us. And this is in the very earliest parts of the church. Uh, the creed came in the part of mass uh, that was reserved for those who were initiated. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And so in some ways, this is also a symbol of our uh, belonging to this community. Yeah, it's a, it really is. I mean, it, it, I always think, you know, the creed is probably the part of the mass that we pass over most quickly because we think to ourselves, uh, uh, you know, I don't get any emotional sort of jazz out of professing the consubstantiality of the, <laughs> of the son with the father, right? Like, that, you know, uh, that's not the language of poetry, but actually it is. I mean, it's the language in which, which uh, really is performative language insofar as by saying this, we're professing that our deepest identity is this, that like this is the core to us. Uh, in the early church, uh, the creed was called the symbol of faith. And by symbol, it didn't mean like fake thing, uh, a symbol was something, uh, you know, uh, you know, those lockets of love that could be broken in half and you give one to someone and one to another. The, those were symbols that when they were brought together were a sign of oneness. And so this is the, it's like the creed is a symbol it, because it brings us together, uh, right. all the body of Christ into one. Yeah. And, and this, uh, as we have proclaimed that together, and now we move into the, the reception of the Eucharist. We have this, this symbol of our unity the, the, in the creed. And now we participate in the sacrament of our unity, where by partaking in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, we become sharers in that nature, not just, again, individually, but as individuals, we partake in that and become sharers in community. Yeah, I mean, in the church, you can never separate in the church. See, the sacrifice of Christ that is revealed in the Eucharist is not an individual sacrifice. It's the sacrifice in which, you know, in, in the Gospel of John, it says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all things to myself. Mm -hmm. it, it was, it's the drawing together of all creation, of all the cosmos, of all of humanity into this divine love. And so the church is formed by the Eucharist. The church is a Eucharistic thing. It's not the club of people who just say like, hey, I want to get together sometime and <laughs> right. hang out and talk about things. It is Eucharistic. It is the space of the sacrifice of love gathered together around this love so that it might become this love. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, without 
um, you can't commune alone. We commune together in Christ's body um, as we enter to receive this sacrifice. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, Academic Director of Liturgy at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, talking about his book, Bored Again Catholic, How the Mass Can Save Your Life, available right now on our Sunday visitor, osv.com. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. We talked today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame about his book, Bored Again Catholic, How the Mass Can Save Your Life. Uh, it's available on our Sunday visitor press, osb.com. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share the show with others, have no fear. It's archived. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, and right there on that front page, you find this episode as well as all the other episodes we've ever done. Go back and listen to some of your favorites. Share it on social media. It's all right there for your use. There's more to this conversation with Dr. O'Malley that didn't make it into today's show. Every week, we get a couple of questions extra with our guests, somewhere between 8 and 15 minutes, where we continue the conversation for those people who love this show so much, they think it's worth at least a cup of coffee. That's right, for $5 a month, you get access to all of the extra content uh, from these episodes, all the extra segments. So go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, support the show, and join the numbers of people who help keep this show going month after month. Well, here we are. We're at the end of Easter, almost. Next week is our last, uh, last episode on the Eucharist. Last episode in this this Easter Paschal uh, season series. And so it'll be time to turn our attention to a different topic. We'll celebrate Pentecost together, and then we look into ordinary time. Now, I'm going to come up with something. I have lots of ideas of things I want to talk about, but this is also an opportunity for you to join the conversation. Join me on social media. You can find me at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's just at outside the walls. And talk to me about what you want to hear. Maybe there's a specific topic that really interests you and you think it ought to really interest me as well. Maybe there's a guest that you really would love to hear interviewed, uh, a book that you read, a, an apostolate that you've heard of, something that just kind of lights your fire. Well, come over to social media and let me know what that is and you just might hear it right here in a future episode. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to our reading from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture is going to come from the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and says, I am reminding you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and in which you also stand. Through it, you are also being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that, 
he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born abnormally, he appeared to me. That reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. And we often forget this. Sometimes we think that Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended straight into heaven, and we take everything on faith. Well, you and I today, we take a lot on faith, but we also take a lot on the faith of the church, of that early church who bore witness to the historicity of the resurrection. Here we have uh, more than is necessary. As God does time and time again, he exceeds our own expectations. At that time in history, there was a specific number of witnesses you needed in order for something to be credible uh, in, and believed in court, as it were, uh, the closest approximation that we have. And that number was superseded And Paul talks about that here with the apostles and the disciples and then numbers upon numbers into the hundreds of people who physically witnessed with their eyes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over an extended period of time, uh, the reason that we celebrate Pentecost 50 days after Easter, the reason that we celebrate the resurrection, the, the Easter season all the way up to Pentecost is because this is that time where Christ was appearing to his apostles, to his disciples, and to even multitudes during this time. Uh, And then, of course, we have 40 days that Jesus continued appearing to people after his death. Uh, Then you have the ascension into heaven, and then 10 days later, uh, he sends his Holy Spirit. That 50th day, he sends his Holy Spirit upon the 120 gathered in the upper room, And that begins the birth of the church. So there's a reason that we have this extended period, more than just the fact that this is a really important thing to celebrate. It it also recognizes the historicity of the event. Now, today, our reading from church history comes from a discourse on the Psalms by St. Augustine. Our thoughts in this present life should turn on the praise of God because it is in praising God that we shall rejoice forever in the life to come. And no one can be ready for the next life unless he trains himself for it now. So we praise God during our earthly life, and at the same time, we make our petitions to him. Our praise is expressed with joy, our petitions with yearning. We have been promised something we do not yet possess. And because the promise was made by one who keeps his word, We trust him and are glad, but insofar as possession is delayed, we can only long and yearn for it. It is good for us to persevere in longing until we receive what was promised and yearning is over, then praise alone will remain. Because there are two periods of time, the one that now is, beset with trials and troubles of this life, and the other one yet to come, a life of everlasting serenity and joy, we are given two liturgical seasons, one before Easter and one after. The season before Easter signifies the troubles in which we live here and now, while the time after Easter, which we are celebrating at present, signifies the happiness that will be ours in the future. 
What we commemorate before Easter is what we experience in this life. What we celebrate after Easter points to something we do not yet possess. This is why we keep the first season with fasting and prayer, but now the fast is over and we devote the present season to praise. Such is the meaning of the Alleluia we sing. Both these periods are represented and demonstrated for us in Christ our head. The Lord's passion depicts for us our present life of trial, shows how we must suffer and be afflicted and finally die. The Lord's resurrection and glorification show us the life that will be given to us in the future. Now, therefore, brethren, we urge you to praise God. That is what we are telling each other when we say, Alleluia. You say to your neighbor, Praise the Lord. And he says the same to you. We are all urging one another to praise the Lord and thereby doing what each of us urges the other to do. But see that your praise comes from your whole being. In other words, see that you praise God not with your lips and voices alone, but with your minds, your lives, and all your actions. We are praising God now assembled as we are here in the church. But when we go on our various ways again, it seems as if we cease to praise God. But provided we do not cease to live a good life, we shall always be praising God. You cease to praise God only when you swerve from justice and from what is pleasing to God. If you never turn aside from the good life, your tongue may be silent, but your actions will cry aloud, and God will perceive your intentions. For as our ears hear each other's voices, so do God's ears hear our thoughts. That reading comes from a treatise on the Psalms by St. Augustine. And so, what we receive in Mass as we commune with God, as we turn our attention to Him, as we offer Him our prayers and offer Him uh, our, our hearts, we then orient our whole life to be focused on God. And when we go out, yeah, we're not necessarily saying the same prayers as we go through our day, but we have the opportunity to orient our attention to God, to see everything that we do through the lens of the Eucharist. And so as we greet our neighbor, we do so mindful that Christ has told us to love one another, right? As, as we, maybe, maybe as you drive in traffic and you get cut off, you, you become mindful again of the words of the priest to you at the beginning of Mass, peace be with you, Right? Now, as we have participated, as we have communed with God, as we have received from him, now it affects us everywhere else we go. And so, so long as we continue in that, that attention, so long as we strive to live a holy life, there we are giving praise to God for all of his goodness to us. In whatever we do, whether it thought, word, deed, whether we're taking out the garbage, washing the dishes, doing something kind for a neighbor, whatever it is that we do, we are giving God praise through our actions. And this, this Mass, this time of coming and receiving Christ in the Eucharist, is that thing which helps the muscle memory, where we begin to recognize God in all things, where we recognize the presence of God in our life from communing with him, so that then we can go out and manifest Christ to the world around us. 
Find Dr. Timothy O'Malley's book, Bored Again, Catholic, How the Mass Can Save Your Life, over at osv.com or wherever fine Catholic books are sold. Go listen to the other conversation within the extra segment by going to outsidethewalls.com. Click the Patreon link and join the numbers of those who support us like Rodney Moxley and all the others who make sure we can bring you this show every week. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace.